Good afternoon, everybody, uh, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you might be. Uh, my name is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore here in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we're, we're very delighted to have Owen Matthews uh, back with us to discuss his brand new book, White Fox, and, and some other new projects, which Barbara will be getting into. And Owen joins us from Rome, which is, what time is it there? Uh, it's just gone 11 o'clock. Okay, there we go. Um, Barbara's holding up the advanced copy of White Fox, and we expect our copies in shortly. So if you'd like to purchase one, as always, I'll go ahead and put a, a link in the comments field. Um, and should you have questions for Owen, uh, please don't be shy, put them in. And Barbara will bring me back on screen towards the end of the hour, and I'd be happy to ask any questions. So Barbara, over to you. Thank you very much, Patrick. Good evening. Oh, and I should say Buenos Aires, right? Because you're in Rome. <laughs> I love Zoom. It's so international. Actually, Owen and I had a discussion yesterday about what time it is actually going to be when we're doing this, because as I keep saying, the hardest part about Zoom is time zones. It really is. You know, Zoom itself is easy, but trying to make sure that we both arrive at the same juncture to start is more complicated especially when Owen is doing this in, you know, like 2200 and I'm still stuck on 10 o'clock. <laughs> even harder for me, but we've, we've made it. So let me tell you a little bit about Owen, um, who we met last year with his middle book in the trilogy. Owen reported on conflicts in Bosnia, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Chetney, Iraq, and Ukraine and was Newsweek's bureau chief in Moscow. He's the author of the Black Sun trilogy, of which White Fox is the third book, and we'll talk a bit about Black Sun and Red Trader. He's also the author of several nonfiction books, including Stalin's Children, Glorious Misadventures, and An Impeccable Spy. But I have discovered upon reading the author note, which is so useful, but don't do it until you finish the book, that Owen's family actually has quite a long history in Russia. So were you drawn to Moscow and all of this because of your family connections? Yeah, absolutely, of course. Um, uh, I'm I'm a very uh, I think I'm very lucky in that respect. Uh, my mother, uh, my mother is Russian, um, or rather, uh, what I used to tell people was. Uh, in fact, what is true, which is she's Russian born in Kharkiv, but that uh, over the last year has become a rather difficult statement to make because Kharkiv is now, of course, in Ukraine, and it was in Soviet Ukraine when she was born in 1934. Uh, but nonetheless, she was born into an ethnic Russian, Russian-speaking family in Kharkiv in Soviet Ukraine. Um, and uh, she spent most of her life, uh, um, well, the first half of her adult life in Moscow and married my father in 1969. And I was born in London, but but um, it's an enormously privileged thing to be able to speak a foreign language almost like a native. Uh, because for me, actually, my entire life has been spent as a foreign correspondent, in fact, straight after leaving university. And, and I've always loved being a foreigner um, in the sense that it's uh, liberating. It's enormously liberating to find yourself you know, outside the rules of a culture. You're just an observer. You know, and when I was a young reporter in Moscow, um, and in fact, looking back on my career, I realized that actually, probably my early days as a city beat reporter uh, back at the Moscow Times in 95 to 97 uh, was maybe the peak of my career, actually. I think it's been downhill ever since because I think oh. I did such great work. <laughs> you know, when I was like 23, it was like, you know, 
But so so in, in Moscow, you know, whether you're sort of crawling on the train platforms to interview kind of tramps and teenage prostitutes and punks and skinheads, and the next day you're at some party with you know oligarchs and some crazy 1990s Moscow club, you know, you're you're completely you can be completely at home in any environment because you're kind of you're a foreigner. You know, people look at you like, who's that guy? Oh, he's a foreigner. So you have that tremendous freedom, and also uh, in terms of the language, uh, my mother. Uh, spent her career as a teacher of Russian language and literature and uh, with that sort of hard sort of very uncompromising very uh, uh, very thorough Soviet school of teaching so she actually sort of drilled into me uh, the Russian language so I was extremely lucky all my adult life to be able to you know, speak completely fluent Russian and uh, feel myself quite at home in Russia. And uh, yes, as you correctly divine, that's kind of the, the reason why I've, um, I wrote uh, the Black Sun Trilogy. In fact, all my books are about Russia, more or less. Um, the Black, Black Sun Trilogy was my way of exploring the Russia of the early 1960s, which is also the Russia in which my mother you know, was a young woman in Russia, in Moscow in the 1960s. So, you know, you do speak about the Russian language and you speak Russian. I studied Russian and it's it's a difficult language for those of us who are trained in the Romance languages, which is what I was, uh, because like German, it has declensions, which, you know, I find, of course, Latin does too. So there we are. But anyway, um, but what really can throw you, I think, at first is that the Cyrillic alphabet has characters that are different in Russian than they are in in English and so you have to unlearn and then relearn the you know the phonetics of many of the um many of the written symbols for Russian except for the few that are are unique to the Cyrillic alphabet so um you know I can still but um, but I had a Russian teacher, I think I told you that, who was a white Russian who escaped from Russia and came to San Francisco and taught us at Stanford. And on weekends, he taught profanity at the Army Language School in Monterey in the 19, early 1960s, late 50s, so that American spies could go to Russia and be fluent, not just in Russian, but fluent in profanity, which is what they, they weren't going to necessarily learn in an academic setting. Um, but <laughs> well, it's true. You know, I always wished I'd gone to one of his language school classes instead of up to Russian Hill in San Francisco, where it was far more elegant. Um, but I've I've traveled in Russia, but I agree with you, it's very different as a tourist um, than it is. And you know, if you're you're held to a different standard. And let me say also, since you have a British background, that being an American in England is quite liberating because they already know you don't know how to go on, as the British would say. So when you do things that they're appalled by, they kind of forgive you by just saying, well, you're an American. Um, so, you know, every society has its own um, strictures and its own conventions. And many of them, if you're not born into it, you never really acquire or you're never really comfortable with them. So um, I've been an outsider in many other countries, many other languages. And I also advocate most of the time that people who are writing a book set in another country, unless they're native, might want to go in as an American, because that way you can get away with things that if you were, you know, if you were British writing British, it's one thing, but if you're an American writing British, but you're not British, it's more difficult. 
Well, it's interesting you should say that because I, I mean, in in fact, um, I mean, we're all strangers in almost all societies in the world, including societies that we think of as our own society, frankly. Uh, I remember when I, my, my wife is Russian, I remember um, uh, quite early on uh, when we first met back in 1999, she said something like, oh, you foreigners, something, you know, some sort of joke. And I said, well, and I thought about it for, for a moment. I thought, well, you know what, like, yeah, I am indeed a foreigner, but actually like you, you know, my wife and I have much more in common with each other as sort of, you know, you know, rather well-educated sort of cultured, metropolitan, quite privileged, well-traveled people. You know, we have, you know, that we're lucky enough to be in that position. We have me, a British person who grew up in Britain, and she who's grown up in, who grew up in Moscow, actually have much more in common with each other than we, in fact, probably have with, you know, a working class person from, you know, a remote province in our own countries. So, uh, and also um, that idea of remoteness, it doesn't, it's not just geographical, it's also historical. Um, you know, the past is another country, they do things differently there. I mean, and uh, it's the same as, you know, it's the same story if you're writing about, you know, the 18th century or the 16th century, you know, we can't travel there, but the, the but most we can do is sort of absorb as much of the sensibility as, as we can. And crucially, of course, when we're telling a story about another culture, um, as you'll notice, basically all books, <laughs> you know, especially thrillers, but you know, most novels um, set in a time that is different or a place that is different, um, have a hero who has a foot in each world. Okay. So I, I, take, I totally like, agree. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. So, so, so if, if you take, for instance, like uh, Hilary Mantel's um, trilogy about Thomas Cromwell, yeah, Wolf Hall. Um, the hero is a person who lives in the 16th century, you know, at the, at the court of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and all these stories that we know. But actually his sensibility is kind of half modern, you know, because he's a free thinker, he's a Protestant, you know, he's, he, he, he's, he's traveled to Italy. So he's kind of an insider outsider. You know, he's only half in the world in which he inhabits. And because he's only half in it, he himself like gets to sort of observe the strangenesses of the thing, of, of the world around him. And it's sort of the same with uh, with my hero, Alexander Vasin in this in this trilogy, is he sort of similarly, although he's not a, a, a foreigner, but, he, but he's sort of also an insider outsider in the sense that he you know, travels into different parts of the Soviet Union. In the first novel, he travels to a secret city where they build nuclear bombs. In the second, he finds himself, you know, in a world of, um, you know, of sort of secret, uh, of, of, of espionage and you know, the whole secret world of the Soviet nuclear submarines and so on. And in this one, he, in, in White Fox, he finds himself in a world of the gulag, the prison camp system of the Soviet Union. So always, you know, you have, you know, the insider outsider. You always have your person sort of reflecting on the strange environment, which is strange to him, even as it's strange to the reader too. Well, I, you know, I agree with you that it may be more difficult to travel from a from to a different class from the one you're used to than a different country. After all, you can learn the language, but you may never learn you know, the, the class distinctions. I mean, you know, it's said forever that Americans are, you know, constantly in conflict about race and the British are constantly divided by class. 
Um, but but you know, in some senses, they that overlaps because um, race and class are are hard to separate in this country. Um, but I wonder, you know, how much somebody, as you say, from an upper class can travel into a lower class wherever it is and vice versa. You know, maybe that's one of the joys of fiction is that it does build a bridge that would be otherwise difficult to construct. It's it's actually much easier to do if you're a foreigner, actually. It's what I was yeah. starting to say before, actually. Uh, it's much easier to travel you know, into radically different and unfamiliar contexts in a different country. It's much harder to do that in your own country because you're immediately pigeonholed, you know, the, um, you know you're, 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 you're kind of insider who people sort of understand and or think they understand. So actually that's one of the most liberating things about, about you know, being a foreigner. You can just, you know, find yourself in, in sort of more or less any context and still be, you know, curious and still, you know, talk to, talk to people, uh, you know, on the basis of, 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 uh, of being a foreigner. It's a, it's a great privilege. Well, Vassen, your, your character, Alexander Ilyich Vassen, was in fact, you say, your uncle, based, or anyway, the character is your uncle. The husband of my mother's older sister, Lenina, they got engaged during the war when he was a young tank captain. After just a couple of meetings, he returned to the front in 1944 and was critically injured when his staff car drove over a mine near Spadensk. His leg had to be amputated with a wooden saw, yuck, but he survived. Um, and instead of, he urged her to abandon him because he was disfigured, but instead she went to the military hospital where she found him, married him, they had a son and so forth. And a lawyer by training, he rose to be the USSR's deputy minister of justice and served the Soviet system all his life, but he was a highly moral man and therefore, you know, had, I, how did he survive that? Was he making constant accommodations or, you know, it would be very difficult to be a highly moral man in, in that kind of a system. Um, the, the times helped. Um, I think if he'd been born a generation or half a generation earlier, um, the real Alexander Ilyich Weissen would have had a much harder time morally because that would have been Stalin era. Uh, I mean, what, what, what we're talking about is in fact, he was training, you know, he, he actually sort of, uh, you know, finishes training as a lawyer just as Stalin died. So you're talking about a very different period. You're talking about the Khrushchev period, the Brezhnev period. You're not talking about, you know, the, you know, the mass executions, of, you know, of 1930s. You're talking about the, the thaw and, you know, the uh, and the subsequent stagnation of the 1950s and 60s and 70s. But the 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 principal way in which my fictional hero is based on my uncle, who I didn't really know very well. I mean, I, I, I visited the Soviet Union several times as, as a child, as a young man. And, um, uh, but the principal similarity is that he it was, or tried to be as a, a decent human being in a fundamentally unjust and indecent system. And I think it's something that's, uh, that, that, that's it's a subtlety that I think it's important to appreciate about how the Soviet Union worked is that um, it was not built purely on oppression. I mean, clearly there was a tremendous amount of oppression. Of oppression. The, the Soviet state slaughtered hundreds of thousands of, uh, of its citizens, including my grandfather, by the way. My mother's father was executed in 1937 uh, as part of Stalin's Great Purge. But um, the point is that actually at a certain point, um, 
you know, in the 1950s. Um, I think you can say that the vast majority of people, of Soviet people, actually, you know, naively or not, but they, but certainly genuinely, kind of believed in the ultimate fairness and decency of the system. I mean, largely because they didn't know about the scale of the gulags and so on. But, you know, the, 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 it wasn't just a sort of terrified population being sort of you know, oppressed and terrified on a constant basis into acquiescence. Because for all totalitarian authoritarian regimes to work, you actually have to have some degree of acquiescence from the vast majority of the people. And in the case of the Soviet Union, I think the uh, it was difficult but possible to believe in the inherent goodness of the system and kind of close your eyes to things that demonstrated that it's, it was in fact profoundly hypocritical, like there was a very obvious class system, for instance, in the Soviet Union. There were like very privileged people who drove around in their private cars and they had access to their to their fancy, you know, special grocery shops just for senior party members and, you know, and, and hung out in, in elite cafes and so on. And that's part of the world that uh, Vasin kind of steps into and steps out of um, through interactions with his bosses. But so, you know, you could close your eyes to that clear evidence of privilege that everyone, some people were more equal than others in the Soviet Union. You could close your eyes to the police state, for instance, and just, you know, pretend that in fact, the, the, you know, the people who are being persecuted by the police state are just, uh, you know, enemies or wrong thinking people. So um, the whole paradox of all the stories in all three of the books of my trilogy is, you know, a fundamentally decent person, Alexander Weissen, who is an, an officer of the KGB. He's hired from the Moscow Homicide Department to the KGB and finds himself, you know, as a good man in a bad system. And he very quickly realizes, and it's the, 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 it's, it's the story of the first part of the, the first novel of the, of the trilogy, Black Sun, is he realizes very quickly how actually, you know, deeply evil the KGB is and how that's a secret from most of the most Soviet people. And the long-standing conflict between the three books is his sort of constant tussle with his with Vasin's boss, his general General Orlov, who is the main antagonist and who is, you know, profoundly cynical. He's extremely brutal. He'll basically do anything to save his own skin. He's actually has no idealism at all, um, but except, you know, to further his own career and you know, use the machinery of repression which the state has put at his disposal for his own personal ends. So in Hoi Fox, you what you're really looking at is the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. So you've divided the book up into a timeline, um, starting what in June, I think it is, of 63, running through December. Um, and what I found interesting was, you know, again, in the author note, um, your discussion of uh, Oswald and how profoundly unlikely it was that even if the Soviets wanted to do an assassination, they wouldn't have chosen him because he was really, you know, the wrong guy for the job. He was psychologically unstable. He wasn't particularly well-educated. You know, he wasn't skilled in any sort of, you know, assassination skills, whatever. Um, but yet there's just enough 
enough for you to, you know, to have a kind of a KGB conspiracy that you could weave throughout this book about whether Oswald actually acted as an agent. Right. So, so the um, I mean, each each one of the books, the trilogy, uh, um, is a sort of fictionalized construct on the basis of a factual, real life story. So, Black Sun is about the construction of the biggest thermonuclear bomb uh, that was ever built, and it really was built in October of 1961. Um, uh, Red Traitor is based on the Cuban Missile Crisis and the real life story of. Uh, a confrontation, a submarine confrontation off the coast of Cuba at the very height of that crisis. And White Fox is, as you say, uh, based on the assassination of Kennedy. And the the sort of the whisper, the sort of the, the tiny little bit of fact that on which this whole story is based is that indeed, just rather recently, just, just as I, in fact, strangely enough, I had the idea to write the book before this, these documents were released. It was very serendipitous and strange. But some documents were de declassified um, that actually detailed Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, contacts, and in fact, in fact, not really very serious contacts and not very substantial contacts or his attempt, but he attempted to contact the KGB uh, twice in Mexico City. And, um, you know, on the basis of that, I build a fiction that Oswald was, in fact, recruited you know, by a faction of the KGB. We're not doing spoilers in this, but he's the whole idea is that, you know, Oswald was put up to it by the Russians, not necessarily the Kremlin, but the Russians. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> it's not to give any way away the plot. But the point is that um, there is... Um, the reality of it is that, in fact, Lee Harvey Oswald, although he did, in fact, um, live in Russia, he attempted to, he, he defected to Russia, uh, the Russians were not very keen to have him because, indeed, it turns out that he was, in fact, quite mentally unstable. And I think um, the reality of the situation was that, actually, Oswald would have been the world's most terrible assassin. Because he was, he was actually, you know, a, precisely the kind of, you know, unstable, you know, very passionate and sort of, uh, you know, uh, he was a sort of one of the kind of guys who would, who today would be joining, you know, you know, ISIS or some kind of like, you know, crazy, you know, uh, militia or you know, the Proud Boys or you know, he was like a conspiracy theorist. He was, uh, he, he, he was, he was a sort of crazy sort of on the crazy side of idealistic. So in fact, if you were the KGB, which um, whatever else it may have been, it was a pretty professional organization in the early 1960s. You would never actually choose that guy to do something so insanely sensitive as literally murder the president of the United States. So it's not actually true, just in case anyone thinks that that's, it's based on a true well, story. But you know, it's, Owen, it, it's very difficult, I think, for, for many people to accept the idea that a loose cannon like Oswald or going back in history, there are many of them in point of fact, could, you know, could have done something so momentous without some kind of, you know, actual organization or as part of a conspiracy or something. I mean, one of the theories constructed here was that it was a mafia hit um, yep. because, you know, Bobby and JFK, but particularly Bobby, were going after, um, you know, much of the which is hilarious because their father made his fortune, you know, by rum running from 
St. Pierre meat plant of Austin during Prohibition. I've actually been there and seen, you know, the evidence of it. But um, I think, you know, for many people, it's more palatable to think that it was indeed something intelligent and organized than it was some kind of a loose cannon like Oswald or, you know, the guy at, at who, you know, assassinated the Archduke and started World War I collapsing or, you know, Charlotte Corday after Murray and the Bath or whatever. Well, uh, yeah, well, there's three different, I mean, I, I, I didn't say that uh, no one put, put uh, Lee Harvey Oswald up to it. I said well, the KGB didn't. <laughs> I think you're right. I, 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 I also think the mafia theory is one of the more convincing ones. But anyway, um, yes. Um, but when you're writing fiction, um, um, and particularly in, in, in a, um, if you're writing a thriller, um, the, 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 the constant trick is to have, you know, the veils which you remove. And, you know, especially, you know, in, in this thriller, um, in, in this kind of thriller, which is, you know, a chase, it's a, you know, an investigation getting through to the secret, under the secret, under the secret, and all three of the books are like that. You know, you need to just have these sort of endless, you know, layers of of obfuscation and the red herrings and the th and, and the theories, so for your for your hero to get through. And in fact, um, that's one of the things that um, was quite difficult in this book was actually just to uh, keep up that tension of you know who actually is you know was Oswald working for like who inside the security establishment of Russia was in fact the guy who organized this uh, this assassination and that's really the sort of becomes the wellspring of the mystery um, and it's coupled with a gigantic chase across <laughs> in literally planes, trains and automobiles across the entirety of the Soviet Union and right. it starts just, sorry I was just gonna say which is really lots of fun and you're right it is fiction and the chase is important. I mean, thanks to Jack Ruby, we'll never actually know for sure. You know, uh, we might not know if Oswald hadn't been killed by Ruby. We might not ever have really fully penetrated it. But without Oswald himself surviving long enough for anybody to question him or so forth, you know, it could be anything. I, what I meant was, I'm not saying that he didn't act for somebody. What I'm saying is it's hard for most people to think that so momentous an act could have been carried out kind of by some stumble bum accident, you know, rather than any kind of coherent, you know, master plan. But it's happened over and over again in history that, you know, assassinations have been carried out by people that, you know, just sort of penetrated this, whatever it was, nobody was paying attention to them. Yeah. Well, in Oswald's case, I mean, this tributes to the excellence of, uh, you know, Quantico's, um, you know, Marine Corps marksmanship program. He was a very good shot. It's true. Right. I mean, it's an amazing shot. Three shots, in fact. Well, yeah, but there's a certain amount of luck involved in all of that, too. You know, the car could have swerved. I mean, there are all kinds of things that could actually happen to make something like that go wrong. Um, so, you know, who knew um, that it would turn out that way? I remember, I think most of us remember in this country that are my age, we remember where we were when it happened in November of 1963, just the way most of us can remember where we were on September 11th, you know, 2001. I know exactly where I was. 
and really? those kinds of events create, you know, a kind of a shared memory um, and a, a shared experience. So where were you? Where was I? Yeah, which which time? Kennedy. Where was I? I was in class um, in my master's program at Northwestern University with a law professor who then proceeded to tell us what kind of a president Lyndon Johnson was going to make and how very dangerous he was going to be because the kinds of things he was going to espouse, the entitlements that he wanted to offer were going to be very dangerous to our country. And I look back and think, what a smart guy he was, because in point of fact, he was right. Um, so for him, for him, the tragedy was not so much losing Kennedy as getting Johnson um, right on the spot. I mean, I can still remember, you know, we all sat there the rest of the day and, and discussed it. And so, you know, it was a, the 60s in this country were a very difficult time that we survived. Um, you know, I have no idea what, I mean, I've been to China and when we were there in 1997, you could still see how the Cultural Revolution had done so many terrible things to Chinese culture, to Chinese society, and also to any kind of progress that it might have made under Mao, because it basically wiped out the, you know, much of the um, leadership class, shall I say, or, you know, the teaching class, which is really in a way what Putin has managed to do to a great degree in Russia right now with a brain drain of, you know, people fleeing. Um, many of, of the country's best people have left. Not all, obviously, but, you know, it's, and with that many people dying, it also makes me wonder, the British might have won the First World War, but in point of fact, they lost a generation of men which had a profound effect. And you have to wonder with over 200,000 casualties so far on the Russian side in this conflict, how that's gonna go. Or whether these were all expendable people because they all got busted out of prison or whatever it was. And, you know, it's too soon to tell. I mean, but, you know, the consequences of this kind of thing are tremendous. Whether it was Stalin in the Great Purge or Putin in the Ukraine or Mao in the Cultural Revolution, you know, the effects on society are just tremendous. Well, it's very interesting what, what you were saying about, about, about America in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s and what a difficult time that was. Because actually, um, one of the things that people tend to forget, uh, because, you know, memories are short, um, about the Soviet Union is that actually, um, until it all went wrong in the 1980s, uh, actually, it was a remarkably successful experiment, sort of between the you know, catastrophe of World War II and the sort of massive bloodletting, and mm -hmm. the 1980s when the whole economy sort of fell apart. Paradoxically, the Soviet Union actually delivered on a tremendous amount of benefits for its people. So you had, you know, you had peace, you had stability, you had constantly rising, uh, you know, cons you know, uh, agricultural consumer goods, you had massive housing, you had, um, you know, infrastructure, you had hydroelectric, electric dams, trains, you know, you know, new metro systems. I mean, it was an extraordinarily stable and dynamic system for a really a very long time. You know, I would say basically, you know, from the, from the end of the 19, well, the beginning of 1950s, 
right through, I think, till the beginning of 1980s. And of course, that was a time when the generation of Vladimir Putin was growing up. Right. So, you know, if you are, you know, somebody, you know, of Putin's generation, and, you know, he was born in 1943, he um, uh, was experienced you know, his entire adult life up to the age of 40 as a citizen of a country, which he was told was the most powerful and prosperous and fairest in the world. And that was not a crazy thing to believe. You didn't have to be a sort of mad, sort of starry-eyed idealist to actually think like, well, yeah, like we you know we don't have poverty, we don't have you know, race riots, you know, we don't have you know Detroit burning, you know, we don't have you know our, our, our politicians being assassinated like JFK and Bobby Kennedy and, and Martin Luther King, you know, we don't have you know essentially a sort of apartheid system as you had until you know pre-civil rights South and so on, you know, it, it was it was not totally irrational and crazy for Putin in the Soviet Union or even for communists in the West to actually look at the Soviet Union saying like this is actually kind of a well-organized you, know, uh, you know, stable and functional society. I mean obviously we now know that it was based on you know, a degree of, of repression and obviously you know, there was a you know, strong you know, ideological censorship and so on. But anyway, but the, the relevance of, of all of this is that um, the Soviet Union that we think of when we think of the Soviet Union is something like sort of poor, dysfunctional, unable to deliver, you know, shoes, cabbages to its citizens. But that's kind of the very end of it. That's the 80s when everything started to fall apart in the command economy. Um, and it was that the, the memory of those sort of great years when the Soviet Union was prosperous, stable and powerful that formed the consciousness of Vladimir Putin and his generation. And that generation of people who are now in their late 60s, 70s are the people who run Russia. And that sort of greatness that they experienced of which they all felt part of, and that's really important, element of it is that Russians, uh, I think maybe Americans too as well, by the way, like they feel a strong personal validation from the greatness of their country, but it's a particularly Russian thing. And well, so that was when, a very Victorian thing, let me point out to you. Brought, I think that the Britons under, you know, Britain in the 19th century in the age of Victoria felt exactly that way. In the same way that I think the French under, you know, Louis XIV felt very much that way in the 18th century. You know, it's, it's a countries rise and have stability and prosperity until they don't. But, you know, those living in that, I mean, I, I have read and I believe it because I was born in 1940, that almost the best time in the world to ever have lived was to have lived in America in the last half of the 20th century. Because, you know, there was prosperity, there wasn't peace. I mean, sure, there were all the cracks that you've just mentioned. There was, you know, depending on who you were, if you were, you know, in the Jim Crow South or whatever, that would have been terrible. But in general, things were good. And now things aren't so good. And, you know, we're beginning to suffer the same cracks that, in fact, we have been, that the Soviet Union experienced in the 80s. But they had moved past Stalin because it wasn't until Stalin died in 52 that much of what happened after that was even possible, was it? Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, um, I, the, 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 the idea, um, I suppose what I, was, what I was talking about, about the, the, sort of the greatness and the prosperity of, 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 of the Soviet Union was, you know, for the people who, living, who lived, you know, lived through that, 
period. Yeah. Um, they, they, they were, you know, much more, I think, strongly propagandized than, you know, there was no sort of counterculture, there was no anti-war movement, there was no Vietnam, there was, you know, the, the society was much more uniform. So, you know, and when we, if you mentioned the Ukraine war, you know, that's really what we're seeing today in Ukraine is kind of the last act of the collapse of the Soviet Union because the war was created in the mines and was entirely predicated on the fears and paranoia of that last Soviet generation or the, 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 the generation that was the, 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 you know, basically baby boomers were, where Putin was born during the war, like as, as you were, but the, um, you know, the, the, that, that generation of Soviet people um, and especially of Soviet KGB people came to believe that um, they, uh, you know, in the, the, that Russia was, you know, being surrounded and constantly undermined and basically attacked by the West. And that was the wellspring of the kind of paranoia and aggression that has caused the current war in, in, in Ukraine. But it's all predicated on that recovering, or it's partly predicated on this idea that Russia is incredibly great and mighty and actually, other, you know, either it's the... the, the partly to restore that sort of respect that they feel they've lost in the world, and partly because they're convinced that you know, everyone in the world is potentially frightened of Russia and is obsessed with doing Russia down. Amazing. Right. So you've written a book which has come out earlier in a different country, but is going to be published here in April. Talk to us a bit about that, because I think it's fascinating that you have leapt into this whole Ukraine conflict um, with insights and possibly predictions. Well, um, I, th I think maybe most readers don't realize quite how publishing works. Publishing can work either, you know, it can work very fast, it can work very slow. Basically, I submitted the manuscript of White Fox, the book, the, the thriller that we've been talking about, uh, just very uh, on the eve of the war, just coincidentally, I just finished it, and um, the war broke out. And I was uh, commissioned by HarperCollins um, to write a book about the origins of the conflict, and it's called Overreach. Um, and the idea um, of the book was to explain why the main mystery of the war, which was, you know, how did Russia get to this state? What happened inside the Kremlin? What happened inside Putin's head? How did they get to the point where we launched the war? And also it became, because I spent most of the war, or I, I went to uh, Russia three times during the war, I went to spend a month in, in Ukraine during the war, and it became also a sort of history of the first six months of that conflict. So the, um, uh, and uh, it's called Overreach, and it's uh, called the, in the Inside Story of the War, of Putin's War on Ukraine. And uh, there's, there have been, and there will be many brilliant books about the war itself from the Ukrainian point of view, which is an important and great story. But for me personally, uh, it's not the, the part that fascinates me. The part that fasc the, the, the mystery is in Russia, not in Ukraine because it was a particular function of you know, a series of events and a sort of closing of Putin's mind um, that led to that extraordinary decision to, to, to invade Ukraine. You know, it's fascinating that you call it Putin's war uh, rather than, you know, a more general term. And it reminds me of how surprised people have been um, 
by the revelation, which I think most Americans had either never figured out or forgotten, um, that America did not actually declare war on Nazi Germany, on Hitler. Hitler decided to declare war on America, which uh, many historians think was, you know, one of his worst mistakes. If he could have kept us sidelined for longer, he might very well, because there was such a, nobody really wanted to join into the European war. We couldn't avoid the Japanese war once we were attacked, but we didn't necessarily have to leap into the European fray, but Hitler decided, you know, within a matter of days to declare war on America. And so, you know, you have to wonder what, what calculation goes through the minds of, I mean, it's like Napoleon, you know, what was he doing? I mean, I often think that he could have been just content with Europe, right? But no, he thought he had to go to Russia. And the, and the real question for me has always been, what was he going to do with Russia if he succeeded in conquering it? Which is really the same question we had in regard to Vietnam. What were we going to do with Vietnam should we have won the war? Or even Afghanistan, for that matter. You know, I find it amazing that nobody kind of gets to these end questions. Well, in, uh, I'm, I'm curiously in, in Napoleon's case, uh, actually, you know, before he decided to invade Russia, in, um, he invaded in eighteen twelve, but he put the, together the plans in eighteen eleven. But the um, a decade before, when he was actually allied to the Russian Emperor Paul, uh, they he hatched this plan with the Russian Emperor, the Tsar Paul, to invade India, and Tsar and Paul actually sent an expeditionary force overland via Afghanistan, which is meant to invade India via. Afghanistan and Napoleon was planning to send a fleet uh, to to support that invasion of India. What, what was Napoleon going to do with India? It's not really clear. Um, no. <laughs> this this um, Putin's case is a, is a little, little bit different, um, and I think um, there's there's three things that I think people don't immediately appreciate, uh, or, or or I think people don't um, you know tend to uh, underestimate, and that is. Um, to Putin, and particularly the close members of his inner circle, and it's very, very small inner circle, but like these are men with whom he's worked, if you know, in the KGB since the 1970s. This is like a group of guys that have known each other for like 45 years. It's pretty extraordinary that they're still, you know, in that little tight circle. But these people strongly believe that Russia has been systematically under attack by America, specifically America that is hell-bent on regime change and actually has a serious policy of overthrowing the Putin regime. That's what they really think. That's really, they, they say it a lot. So, um, you know, in fact, the reality is, you know, as we know, Joe Biden actually stood for election on a policy of decoupling and letting Europe deal with its own problems and, you know, and, and, and actually refocusing to China, which is, which is like the main strategic, you know, he, he, in short, you know, Joe Biden did not care at all about you about Russia, much less Ukraine. It was definitely not something that has that, that Washington was sort of plotting on a regular basis with to overthrow the Kremlin, the, the, the Putin regime. But nonetheless, that you know, Putin and his uh, closest associates strongly believe that. And one of the most important, I think, quotes about the beginning of the war. Uh, about a few years, in fact, before the war, before the invasion, Viktor Zoltov, who's head of the Russian National Guard, another sort of major security figure in the in the Putin inner circle, said, "Ukraine doesn't exist. Ukraine happens to be where Russia's border with America lies." So for them, it's not really about restoring the Soviet Empire. 
it's not about you know the, 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 it's it's not a question of you know Poland's going to be next and then Finland and and and, and you know and, and Estonia that that that's that it's not an imperial war it's a war in their minds of defense against this imagined US aggression and although we might know that to be factually untrue it's important to understand that that's what they believe and the second thing that I think people don't really appreciate is that um, Putin believes, or Putin was completely convinced that a significant proportion of Ukrainians or Ukrainian citizens were not Ukrainians. He thinks they're Russians because they speak Russian. I mean, it's not a you know, crazy mistake. And there were indeed some pro-Russian people who don't want to be part of Ukraine. And that's going to be a definite problem for the end game. But they are in a very small minority. Most Russian-speaking Ukrainians today are very pro-Ukraine and they definitely don't want to join Russia. But Putin launched this war in the name of saving his own people. It's all about protecting our people. And the slogan was in that we don't abandon our, our, our own. And what that speaks to is he's not, he didn't intend to conquer Ukrainian Ukraine as a state, what his intention was, was to save those quote unquote Russian people, those Ukrainians that he believed were not really Ukrainians, but were actually Russians from some sort of nefarious Western plot to pull them into their sort of supposedly fascist regime. So you know, it's based on a totally fallacious and mistaken view of Ukrainian society that all Russian speaking Ukrainians are pro-Russian. He was wrong about that. And the third and most important thing that I think we, we, we um, don't appreciate, and it's important for the end game of the war too, is that Putin is really very concerned about preserving the illusion that, I mean, the, the allowing space for most Russians to ignore the war. So when you go to Moscow, as I, uh, um, last time I was there was in, was in October, I was there during the mobilization announcement of October to, of September 21st. But up to that point, uh, up to September 21st, the war was pretty completely invisible. You had zero feeling that you were in the capital in Moscow of a country that's prosecuting the biggest war of the 21st century. It's, it was not that. I mean, there was no people would, you know, you sort of keep an ear open for conversations in bars and clubs and you know, restaurants. People weren't talking about the war. You know, they, they were all they were talking about the situation, like they're talking about the weather, some sort of generally bad thing that had happened. And you know, for the people who remained, they just sort of were free to make whatever compromises they had to make with their conscience and get on with their lives. And for a significant, for a large minority of people, up to one million people, the war was disastrous. Continuing to live in Russia was unconscionable, but not because they really feared for their lives, it was because they decided that they didn't have a future. Um, and they made that decision to leave the country. But it's really important to understand that Putin, you know, despite the partial mobilization of September 21st, he mobilized 300,000 people with military experience out of 144 million people. It's not a lot of people. Uh, if Russia was to mobilize as, this, as uh, a similar proportion of its population as Ukraine has mobilized, they would have an army two and a half million strong. Well, what do you think the end game will be? Well, unfortunately, um, 
there doesn't seem to be really any happy, um, any equitable end game for this that doesn't end in a situation that is more dangerous than the current one. And it's sort of unfortunately an unsolvable mystery, uh, an unsolvable problem uh, for, for two reasons, uh, a Russian reason and a Ukrainian reason. Um, the Russian, the reason why the war can't really end um, for Russia is that if Putin loses what he has gained in in Donbass, and especially if he loses Crimea, but even the pain point for Putin comes well before that. If even if he loses Mariupol, if he loses significant chunks of the rebel territories of Lugansk and Donetsk, that is the end of his regime and the end of his life. He will do anything to prevent that outcome, up to and including tactical weapons, as we understand, like, as as we know. So, and also Russia still continues to have enormous resources of you know, low-grade personnel, low-grade uh, material. But the problem is that in a conflict situation, um, the quality and motivation and superior uh, morale and uh, leadership and equipment of the Ukrainians, if you plot that in a graph against the sheer volume of force that the, the Russians can put up against that, quantity at some point defeats quality. And that's the problem from the Russian side. They're, they still have tremendous amount of force that they can throw into this battle. And on the Ukrainian side, there's a different problem. And that is that their war, war effort is, for all of their enormous, impressive motivation, is materially 100% based on the goodwill of their Western donors. So it's the West, it's NATO, particularly the United States, that literally has its hand on the throttle of this war. And at a certain point, as you can already see, there's a growing constituency that favors peace over justice. We're not talking about a growing constituency that loves Putin and hates Zelensky. That's not how it works. There's still, you can still be very much in favor of Ukraine and be enormously passionate about you know, how brave they have been, and at the same time advocate for, you know, an end to the war. And that's, the, you know, and as you see in the, in the course of the war, those numbers are growing not in Ukraine's favor. And uh, as you will have soon seen, there was a Pew poll recently saying 40% of registered uh, Republicans said that the U.S. is already doing too much for Ukraine, 15% of Democrats in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, is an outlier at the moment with her extremely strong op opposition to um, um, continuing to arm Ukraine. But she's not alone. Um, in Italy, most of the right and centre-right is actually opposed to the right-wing Prime Minister Georgia Maloney's support for Ukraine. Croatia's against support for Ukraine. Hungary's against it. So, so far, so the Ukraine's biggest problem is that it is not in control of, it, it does not have infinite material resources. That supply of, supply of resources is dependent on factors beyond Ukraine's control. So if in the very likely event that they fail by the end of this summer to recapture the ground that they lost to the Russians in the spring of 2022, they're going to be faced with an impossible dilemma because there is no way that Zelensky or any Ukrainian president can survive surrendering land for peace. 
that's that's politically inconceivable and Ukraine will become ungovernable if any Ukrainian president attempts to do that. So the Ukrainians can't compromise for political reasons, although in fact, I think personally, I agree with Zelensky's first uh, foreign minister, a guy called uh, Vadim Pristaiko, who's now the Ukrainian ambassador in London, but Pristaiko said in 2019, we need to amputate Donbass like a gangrenous limb, like nothing good is ever going to come from Donbass. We need to just like build a wall, get shot of it, like, you know, wish them luck, goodbye. But, and he was fired from his job as foreign minister for saying that. It was unsayable in 2019. It's even more unsayable today. Um, they can't just amputate Donbass. They have to fight for it because they promised to fight for it. If they don't fight for it, then they will, millions of people who have suffered and whose relatives have died will uh, consider that to be a betrayal. So the Russians can't compromise because the, that means a sort of regime change disastrous situation inside Russia. And the Ukrainians can't compromise because they, uh, it's politically unsurvivable. So unfortunately, the, the, I think the most likely scenario is uh, you know, a, a hard ceasefire. In other words, essentially a frozen conflict. Not a, not nobody, a... nobody wins and nobody loses. Well, right, basically. Amazing. I talked to two guys last week who have a long experience in fighting and so forth. And their, their belief is that that Putin's basic mindset or the Russian mindset is not win-win. It's not about winning as so much as making the other side lose. Um, right. That constitutes a win. And therefore it's really hard for, for the West, especially Americans to think in those terms. Um, but if that may be the realistic, you know, the realistic term is that um, nobody can win. So it's just a question of trying not to look like the bigger loser. Well, I, I, I think, I, I don't think that the, yeah, so, so, so the Russian, Russia can't win this war. It can't achieve any of its objectives. But the best that Putin can hope for is not to lose it. That's and I right. think the chance of not losing it. Well, we'll see. It's hard to live through anything like this, you know? I mean, all the stories that are flooding the world about World War II, we know how it came out. So, you know, it's... Um, the unease, the, you know, the suspense of who will win the war has been dissipated. And now we get to learn about all the ways in which people manage to fight and survive. But right now we're in the middle of this one. So nobody really knows for sure how it's going to come out. That's true. That's true. So now that you finished this trilogy, what are you writing next? Uh, that's a good question. I haven't decided yet. Ah, so you are going to be publishing your your book on the first six months of the Ukraine. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the title already. Uh, Overreach. Yes, it came out it came out it came out at the end uh, came out in November in the U in the U UK and it's coming out in April in the US. Okay. April. Well there was an essay today and I think it was in the Wall Street Journal about how Britain has kind of pulled itself up into a more international ranking by its support of the Ukraine, which I thought was an interesting position. But um, it appears to me that the conservative government in Britain is very much on the side of the Ukraine. They certainly are, very passionately, and with far more unanimity, I must say, than the US political yeah. sphere. No, I do. I agree. But you know, our country is so roiled at the moment by 
both the left and the right, that it's very difficult to achieve consensus, but we've been through this before, and with any luck, we won't have an actual civil war once again, but we'll resolve it. I'm hoping that, you know, we have the same problem with Trump in a lot of ways that, you know, Putin has. It's just, it's so personal with him, and he's operating from premises that that really most of us don't agree with. So what do you do? you know, with somebody like that. We got him out of office. Will he come back? It's all a whole different question. So we'll see. Hi, there's my puppy coming down to see what I'm doing. So Patrick, come join us and tell us if there are any questions or whether you have comments of your own you'd like to make. Sure thing. Let's see here. There, there I am. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask, are you, before I, before I assume too much, you're the same Owen Matthews, who wrote the book about Richard, is it Sorge? How do you pronounce the name? It's uh, Richard Zorge, the S-O-R-G-E. He's uh, the greatest uh, uh, greatest spy of World War II. Exactly. I wrote an impeccable spy back in 2019. I was just reading about it. Can you, just for the people watching, can you, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, what can you tell us about that? Richard's, uh, Richard Zorge was a, um, a German uh, communist. Uh, he was actually born in a Russian empire um, to a German banker and a Russian mother. He was born into that, uh, the same generation as Adolf Hitler, actually. As a very young man, he fought in the First World War. And just like Hitler, he became incredibly disillusioned about the world uh, that was broken in the First World War. Um, Hitler became a fascist, Zorge became a communist, became a very successful spy. And the peak of Richard Zorge's spying career was uh, the years that he spent as, a, as a, officially as a German newspaper correspondent, unofficially as a Soviet spy in Tokyo, Japan. And uh, the reason why he is such an important spy is that he provided information to the Soviets that confirmed that the Imperial Japan would not def definitively not attack the Soviet Union in the summer of 1944. In other words, in 1941, I beg your pardon. So the, the Germany attacks uh, the USSR in Operation Barbarossa in the summer of 1941. Will the, will the Japanese attack too? That's a really important question because if you know they're not going to attack, your spy has definitely given you absolute proof from his excellent sources that you're not going to be attacked from, from, from Asia that summer at least. Stalin mobilizes an enormous number of forces, five army corps, from the Soviet Far East to the defense of Moscow. And as we now actually know in retrospect, although it was not clear to anyone at the time, November 1941, when Hitler fails to take Moscow is in fact the turning point of the war. It's yeah. not really, Stalingrad is when he starts to lose it, but really like not taking Moscow in the November of 41 is that key moment. And the reason why he doesn't take Moscow is because Stalin reinforces from the Far East because of information that a spy has given him. So it's, you know, that's a pretty important piece of spying. Absolutely. You know, who was that ger the famous German who wrote his memoirs, um, Galen? Uh, does that sound familiar? Uh, right, is it Reinhard Galen? He was the a Nazi spy. G e h e l i n, I think was his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah fascinating. It was. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. 
No, I mean, the, the, so, but what's interesting about, about Richard Zorge and, and um, is that he, um, like many spies of that nature, rather like Kim Philby, actually, um, he was an extremely gregarious, sort of alcoholic, outgoing kind of guy. He, like, his life and soul of the party, everyone loved him. He was like, you know, women loved him. Women wanted him. Men wanted to be like him. You know, he's, you know, he was extraordinarily charismatic guy, but actually mentally really damaged, incredibly damaged, weird guy, because he he spends, you know, a, more than a decade of his life literally not telling the truth to any other human being. He lives his life entirely in the shadows. Nobody knows, not even his own agents actually know precisely the full scale of what they're doing. And so he's, mm. it's almost as though he's addicted to deception, which on a human level is actually really interesting. How do people live their lives like that and why? Uh, I mean, clearly I think there's an element of sort of narcissism about it. You know, you know I know a secret. Right. You know, by deceiving you, I'm proving that I'm smarter than you. You know, I know something you don't know. And, I, and he's constantly sort of laughing at everybody around him. But at the same time, um, you know, Japan in the 19, late 1930s and the 1940s is an incredibly difficult, dangerous, hostile environment to be a spy. You know, this man is pathologically addicted to danger. He takes insane risks all the time. And his major hobby, by the way, is getting extremely drunk and then driving his very powerful motorcycle around Tokyo at three o'clock in the morning at high speed. That's like, that's like what he does for fun, crashing it <laughs> all the time. Like, like five times he crashes his bike and cars. That's, that's like what he did for fun. Now, how, how was researching a book like that? Was that difficult or? Uh, the Zorke book was, was, was actually fascinating because no book had been written in English about um, using Soviet archives. So um, there's obviously been a tremendous amount of research uh, on the Soviet and Russian side, but none of that has actually like all that, that, that detail had found itself into a into an English language book. So I was able to uh, so unite a tremendous amount of, of scholarship that's been done on the Zorge story uh, in Japan with the actual sort of you know what was really happening or you know, the story from inside the, the the Soviet archives. And one of the weird things about the story was you may ask like how did you get access to the KGB archives and the answer is I did not get access to the KGB archives because Richard Zorge did not work for the KGB he worked for military intelligence so the the kid the KGB files are like closed 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 like you know you cannot get to them but weirdly for some reason um all of the, well, you don't know what's not in the file, but you do know that the file that you get in the archive is the complete file because it's, you know, it's being collated. So, you know, all, all the documents are numbered. Like, so what was put in the file, top secret file in the 1960s was everything that's in the file. Like what wasn't put in, you don't know. That, that's, that's, that, that, that's separate. But so all of these extremely sensitive operational documents, you know, all the correspondence between the Soviet Union's spy in Tokyo and the Moscow center, all of this stuff, is weirdly available in the Defense Ministry archives. And so that actually sort of is a kind of weird loophole in research that allowed me to actually see, you know, re read it in, in tremendous detail. The sort of, uh, what, do you, what do you think, Barbara? I think this would make a hell of a novel. Have you considered it? Absolutely true. And you yeah. know, I'm gonna ask the same question. Why is it you think that Hitler thought that invading Russia was a good idea? I already asked that about Napoleon. 
yeah well it's the same reason why why, why putin thought that um that invading ukraine was a good idea because he thought he could win easily so he thought um, it would be a pushover it's, it's really it's really simple i mean you know, timothy snyder you know said it you know the all wars start because you know somebody underestimates the opponent and over, overestimates their own strength people well, start that's true. yeah well, that's true with the japanese attacking pearl harbor the same thing you know so custer <laughs> no. george custer yeah massive uh massive mistake there absolutely no it's true that's a you know that's a really good point that underestimating your target is probably you know is what is what causes these kinds of situations wow wow well, anyway, Owen, I always strayed off from White Fox into contemporary events, but it was almost hard to resist. Um, I do think that this is a fascinating theory, um, fictional theory anyway, about what happened with JFK and who the main players were. And since we're never entirely going to know the truth of what happened with um, Lee Harvey Oswald and the whole bit, we can... I don't know. I keep hoping, you know, that someday some definitive document will surface, you know, and say, yes, it was the mafia or, you know, no, it was this, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, so we can all be free to speculate on what it might be. I had a creepy moment in Dallas. There was a mystery convention on right across the street, basically from the, from the Texas book depository. And so it's kind of like a little public park, you know, where you walk over there and stand and, and, you know, kind of think about what happened. Yuck. I don't know how our country would have been different if it hadn't happened, but it certainly would have been in lots of ways. And that's another, I think, fascinating subject is what might have happened if Kennedy had not been killed. What would have happened in Vietnam? What would have happened in terms of social justice in this country? You know, what would have would, happened? Would Bobby have been killed? Well, that's another thing, although, you know, can you draw any straight line between Siren Siren and Lee Harvey Oswald? I don't, I don't know that you can. Um, but yeah, it might have been completely different mm. in that respect, too. But we don't have the luxury of living alternate history. We can only imagine it in books. So there we go. Um, I was certainly looking forward to Overreach publication. I imagine it's going to touch off all kinds of articles and reviews, so and so. Amazing. Thank you. It's great to speak to you. And thank you for having me on. It's a really great pleasure, as always. And that was the well, ground, Barbara. You're, you're, you're good at this. <laughs> well, but, you know, I've, I'll be really interested to see if you write a follow up book because, you know, we sat here and sort of been pundits, but not really because we, you, you're informed, but none of us know for sure because history also is driven sometimes by accident, which none of us can, can really predict. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see maybe a couple of years from now, what kind of, how how accurate you were and yeah. whether it works out the way you think it will. Yeah, well, on the end of the war, I, I fervently hope that I'm wrong. Put it that yeah. way, I hope better than, I, than, I, than, my, than my gloomy prediction. Well, I don't know that it's gloomy. I think it's realistic. And, you know, it's not as gloomy as the thought that nuclear war will follow. Or, you know, there's always the chance of accident in something like this, you know, where somebody could accidentally trigger off some nuclear weapon and then it'll be like World War One, where all the dominoes fell once that happened. You know, World War One could have been prevented if anybody had said, you know what, we're not going to stand in line with all the dominoes and fall together, if, you know, but it didn't work out that way. 
So who knows? Anyway, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we do enjoy White Fox and um, see you later. Good night. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Barbara. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.